0: So we've recently been looking at the Four Noble Truths, a foundational teaching in the Buddhist tradition. The Four Truths are, the first, there is this reality of suffering in life. The second, there's a cause of the suffering. The third, there is a way out of suffering. And the fourth is the path. We're currently on the Second Noble Truth. I wanna to start today with a very short story. This is a story I don't think I've shared before, but it's one that I've known for a long time. And it's one that when I first heard it, it just stuck with me. And um, you might you might see why uh, with the story. So there was a wise woman who was traveling in the, in the mountains. And when she was crossing a stream, she saw a precious stone in the water. She picked it up and put it in her bag. The next day, she met a traveler who was hungry and she had food in her bag, opened her bag to share the food with the hungry traveler. Uh, And when he looked in the bag, he saw the precious stone. He asked her if she would give it to him. She said, sure. Take it, it's yours. The traveler took the stone and left, rejoicing in his good fortune. He knew that this stone was worth more than enough to take care of him financially for the rest of his life. A few days later, he went back to find the wise woman and returned the stone to her. He said, I've been thinking, I know how valuable this stone is, but I give it back in the hope that you can give me something I know that is even more precious. Give me what you have within you that enables you to give me the stone. So in the Four Noble Truths, the second noble truth is that the origin of our suffering is craving, clinging, trying to hold on. Clearly, the hungry traveler in this story gets this. He understands the true cost in terms of suffering, of clinging, even to something like a stone that could give him financial freedom for the rest of his life, still understood a deeper true cost of suffering if he was willing to give up that precious stone in exchange for learning freedom from that clinging. So today we really want to look more at this second noble truth, particularly around the idea of how do we orient ourselves when we explore this truth of clinging, craving, greed. For us Westerners, we can be so imbued in a self-judgmental way that how we orient towards looking at a truth of craving, desire, hunger, greed, all of that, it can actually go fairly easily to a not wholesome, not helpful place. So we need to take the time to orient ourselves towards this teaching In order that when we spend time with it and we're looking for where clinging, craving, desire, hunger, greed, thirst, whatever word you want to use, is showing up in our lives. We're able to see it in a way that invites healing and opening and not further self-blame or judgment. And I really um, know something about how this teaching can take us in the wrong way. I was a religion major in college many years ago. And I remember uh, I took a class on Buddhism, kind of very interested in in what this tradition could teach me about um, the mind and uh, found out about these four noble truths and was kind of excited to unpack them and understand them. And we got to the second noble truth, which was craving. I distinctly remember my reaction was, oh yeah, of course. The idea of the second noble truth, our source of suffering being craving just automatically begged the question. And so why do we people crave so much? And I knew the answer for me was, well, I'm a bad person. So of course I do this. I was saturated enough in self-judgment to really not want to spend much time looking at all the ways I could further my guilt trip by highlighting my greedy craving ways. I don't think think I'm very unique in that. We hear craving in this culture, and we think, yeah, there's a problem with me. So how we orient towards looking at this teaching is really, really useful. There were two things that really helped me find a different orientation Uh, And an orientation that was free of that not useful self-judgment. And therefore began to shine a light of the freedom offered in this as a noble truth. Uh, The sweet relief that is is held within this as a noble truth. The first thing that helped uh, is something I talk about a lot. Um, once I really began to understand the neuroscience of our survival minds and that fight-flight-freeze reactivity triggered out of fear, that helped me put this teaching into a different context and one that had a different kind of accessibility for me. I had a um, teacher many years ago... Uh, that I deeply respected. He was a therapist who worked primarily with kids with um, severe trauma issues. Now, remember, one thing he would do in all any any kind of present introductory presentation he he had, he always would show a picture of um, a four or five year old little boy who had this just intense expression on his face. And Brian would put the picture up and he would say, I'm gonna tell you something about this little boy. And I want you to notice what happens in your body when you hear what I have to say about this little boy. And then he would say, Johnny is angry. There were oftentimes people who would even kind of laugh, the idea of little Johnny being angry in the room. There were a number of people who would name that something in their body tightened and contracted against this four to five-year-old little boy. Then Brian would show the same picture and say, and now. What happens in your body when I say this? And he would say, Johnny is scared. Virtually everyone could feel a shift from that defensive bearing bear, against Johnny, bear, protecting against whatever was going on for Johnny and his anger coming out. Feel this softening and this leaning forward and this accessibility of heart to meet johnny who had the exact same expression in both in both forms there is something about our wiring that when we can understand a fearful place underneath an intense emotion it allows the heart to be naturally accessible. It allows this kind of natural awakening of our compassion, of our tenderness, of our softening. The same is true around the idea of greed, of craving. If I can see a situation in my own self, and be able to say something like, wow, this situation is triggering some fear in me. It's much easier for me to drop into an available compassion for what's present, which allows me to become available in a responsive, more responsive way to the situation much more palatable to my system than if I say to myself instead for the exact same situation, something like, wow, look how greedy I am. That self-judgment shuts things down instead. So this can show up in even really simple examples. Like say, for example, I'm having a really stressed out day And someone offers a cookie that I know I don't need and I know I don't want in that moment. But in that moment of stress, whoosh, the hand goes right out, grabs the cookie, brings it in and gobbles it up and the cookie is gone. If I can connect that act of grabbing, craving, wanting, um, overeating Uh, if I can connect that act to an appropriate understanding of this as a really poor attempt at stress management, i.e. some sort of stress triggered out of some sort of fear of things not being the way I want them to be, if I can connect it to that, it is so much more useful than thinking instead wow, I ate that cookie because I'm a really greedy human being. And there are actually people starving in this world. And what am I doing? I'm just gobbling up cookies instead. I can say absolutely. Beating myself up has never actually made me deal better with stress. It has never actually made me more available to being in right relationship with people I care about and the world in a way that I care about. So being able to see into an underlying level of fear or stress under any kind of craving, greed, uh, clinging, it really helps shift the focus in a way that makes our more resourced self available to dealing with the situation. So that's where the neuroscience was really helpful for me. What's interesting is when I came back to understand more about the Buddhist tradition, what I found is that there's another Buddhist answer as to why we cling it's very much in alignment with this same answer, with the same neuroscience insight. And it's fascinating. And it is not something that we talk about much in the West, not something that we really spend time looking at much. So to bring it back to the Buddhist understanding of the Second Noble Truth, when it talks about clinging as the cause of our suffering, it's important to understand what's actually said. that is that clinging is the most proximal cause of our suffering. What this means is that clinging is always the result of a myriad of underlying causes and conditions that at the most surface level are what are manifesting in in this act of clinging um, or this reactivity of craving. It's not that craving just comes out of nowhere. It comes out of causes and conditions that lead to this craving. And the primal, the primordial condition underlying all craving is seen to be a hunger for ground in the midst of a basically groundless experience we hunger for stability to know that the things that we want in our life are stable and secure. And the reality is there's nothing that lasts forever in this life. Everything is always changing. Impermanence is a reality of this life. So if we haven't found a way to live with the fact of impermanence, with the fact that everything near and dear to us will change, including all that we love, if we haven't found a way to live with that truth, with some sort of compassion, with acceptance, with accommodation, with understanding, with a lot of wisdom, then fear is really at the heart of our existence. It is this ghost of permanence that we are constantly trying to chase after through our cravings um, for something, for a reality that doesn't exist. And that we can never obtain our get This hunger for ground in the midst of a basically groundless existence is, is the ultimate cause of trying to hold on. And this has been compared to living with chronic rope burn, trying to hold on to what is ever slipping through our hands. And this is the essence of the second noble truth, that trying to cling to a reality that doesn't exist is the cause of our suffering. Just want to pause for just a moment and say if this idea of hunger for ground in the midst of a basically groundless existence, that is just too heady of an idea, just don't worry about it and toss it out. It's a lot to contemplate. And at some point, maybe you'll come back to it and find it useful. If for right now, just learning about how clinging affects and uh, manifests in your own life, that's enough. Um, and really, really helpful. So the last thing I do want to say about it, though, is again, this is one of those places where there's this remarkable symmetry between Buddhist psychology and modern neuroscience both point to a connection of our cravings being rooted in in fear and if we can open ourselves to that understanding that deeper level of understanding we are naturally accessing the strength of the heart I think for tonight, I really only have time for one more important aspect of clinging. And that is just to name that there's a real difference between wholesome longing and desire and unwholesome clinging and craving. They're not the same thing. And there's nothing about this teaching that ever says we should let go of all desires. Just to go back to that first story about the precious gem uh, it, it illustrates beautifully both sides of it. The hungry traveler at first wanted to grab on and cling to the gym. And then he woke up to that there was something about doing that, that actually wasn't as sweet as a different possibility that he had witnessed in the wise woman. And what he found stronger than the longing for the gym was this wholesome desire to understand the freedom of the wise woman. So this, this teaching is always about noticing when an orientation towards desire is healthy. It's really supporting our life and opening up a path in front of us that, that brings us towards greater wholeness, greater healing, and noticing where there's an orientation towards desire that is unhealthy, that is not supporting our life, not bringing good things in, in, into our path and our way. Just for an example, um, building, wanting to build a healthy relationship, beautiful, wholesome desire, But if we're wanting to build that healthy relationship with the wrong person, it's just like that classic line from the Taylor Swift song that says, loving him is like driving a new Maserati down a dead end street. The healthy desire to build a strong relationship with the wrong person is the clinging that causes suffering. Is just like driving down, driving a new Maserati down a dead-end street. Another example is it's a really beautiful and healthy desire for a parent to want safety uh, for their child. And we all know examples, and maybe we know some of them personally, uh, where a parent's desire for wanting to keep their child safe can get unhealthy and, and, and manifest as a sort of micromanagement that becomes smothering for the child um, and not useful. Now just name a third one meditation. If you meditate long enough, you will meet people who are deep meditators i mean they can sit and they can go into deep profound transcendent space, uh, states but they're doing it in a way that is at the expense of their life the the time on the cushion feels so good and becomes the, the hunger and the desire in such a way that their daily life starts to pay an unhealthy cost for trying to get back to that state. The desire to develop a meditation practice, really beautiful. And even that can can turn to a place that's not useful. So all of this just reminds me of another old story of how monkeys used to be hunted according to this story. So, according to the story, um, the hunter would take a large gourd and empty it out, bore a small hole just the size for a banana to go in, and a monkey's small hand to go into the gourd, and then put a banana in the hollow gourd and put the gourd under a tree where the monkey um, lived. Monkey smells, the banana comes down. Uh, and the monkey's hand can fit in through the small hole, grab the banana, but then the monkey can't get its hand out um, because the hand holding the banana is too big. That's such a powerful metaphor for how we trap ourselves. You know, looking even for the healthy thing, nothing wrong with the banana. It's it's sustenance um, for the monkey. But there's a way we can even hold on to what is basic sustenance that actually is having the effect of trapping us. Nothing wrong with the desire in and of itself, but it's important to notice when clinging to a desire is now causing suffering. So for this week, I really encourage you to explore more where clinging, craving, desire, greed is showing up in your life and pay particular attention to what orientation of mind and heart you bring to that exploration. When you see clinging, is there kind of a knee-jerk reactivity to go into self-recrimination Or is there an ability to look deeper into the roots underneath any act of craving and kind of understand the the attempt and sometimes a tragic misattempt at taking care of a survival fear? Where is that unfolding even in those little moments, even in those small places? And if you like the bigger questions, where is there a hunger for things to be solid when they're actually flowing and moving and changing? And where's that hunger maybe affecting suffering in your own life? What freedom might working with the reality of impermanence? Offer for you. So let's pause here for a moment. Just notice whatever's coming up for you in your own body, mind, heart, as you consider this second noble truth of clinging as the most proximal cause of our suffering. Thank you.